I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ, a CHA Learning and Healthcare Can podcast serial where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading in the health system. Together, we'll try to unpack these topics and learn what actions are being taken to innovatively solve them today. If you've been following along with the HQ the past few months, we're now well along in our exploration of what equity, diversity, and inclusion means, including what it means to several equity-deserving groups. But the conversation and journey is far from done. In many ways, I feel like we, and I myself, still have far to go. I hope you're learning with me as well. One of the areas we have yet to go deep on is that of racism itself. And part of the reason for that is that I've been waiting to have this conversation with today's guest. And yes, while we have heard the voices of some that are part of racialized groups, we haven't yet really discussed what is at play here and our respective roles in bringing about an end to racism in healthcare. And to quote from our guest whom you will meet shortly, it really is a discussion about how the world is and how it should be, which for me is also another way of speaking truth as we seek to reconcile our culture from all the harm it has caused and continues to cause nationally, organizationally, and within our healthcare sector. So with that, I'm truly thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Gaynor Watson Creed. For many who are active or leading on this topic, Gaynor and her work needs no introduction. That said, here's a short snippet of her bio. Gaynor is Associate Dean of Serving and Engaging Society for Dalhousie University's Faculty of Medicine and past chair of the Board of Engage Nova Scotia. She's a public health specialist physician with 17 years experience, having served as the former medical officer of health for the Halifax area and a deputy chief medical officer of health for Nova Scotia. She served as a member of the One Nova Scotia Coalition Economic Strategy Table in Nova Scotia and was recently a member of the Federal Task Force on Women in the Economy, co-chaired by Deputy Prime Minister Christa Freeland and Minister Mona Forche, which completed its work in 2021. Dr. Watson Creed has an MD from Dalhousie University, a Master of Science from the University of Guelph, and a Bachelor of Science from the University of Prince Edward Island, and an honorary doctorate from Acadia University. She also sits as a chair or member of several national population health councils and boards and is a passionate advocate for high quality public health services in Canada. Hi Gaynor and welcome to the HQ. Hi Dale, it's really a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and sharing with us your exceptional knowledge and wisdom. So, so maybe we can kick it off here with um, uh, sort of going to a couple of quotes um, and uh, maybe as we can start with getting you to respond with your thoughts on the quote that I opened with from you yourself um, about, you know, what does it mean when we talk about the difference between how the world is and how it should be? Yeah, and and uh, that's me quoting Inez Nin, who's a 20, 20th century author, um, and I believe she was quoting the Talmud um, in uh, in that quote that she uses in one of her books. Um, and the quote is something like, we don't see the world the way it is, we see it the way we are. And I love that quote when I'm reflecting on the questions around equity, diversity, and inclusion, because I feel like they are pointing to us that um, there is something about how we choose to see the world that is always framed by our own experiences of it. And our own experiences of the world may not be a complete or even accurate representation of the world the way it actually is. And the challenge, I think, for all of us is to see the world 
the way it actually is. And from an equity, diversity, and inclusion perspective, I think many of us find that when we truly sort of go to take those blinders off and actually see the world the way it is, not the way we necessarily want it to be or believe it is, it can be a really ugly and disturbing picture. And yet I think it's actually necessary for us to do that work of taking those blinders off and, and, and committing to seeing things the way they actually are. Because once you can see them, you can engage with them. And if you can engage with them, then maybe you can change them, right? We can change them collectively. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing in the Faculty of Medicine has been in part uncovering what is this history of uh, inequity that has been perpetuated in some ways by the profession of medicine. And sadly, um, we have been complicit mm -hmm. in upholding forms of oppression. And so a lot of my work has been, you know, um, sort of showing that to my colleagues and saying, look, there's something here we have to look at. We may not like it. We may wish it's not there, but that doesn't make it go away. And now that we know that that's there and that uh, medicine as a practice has been built in many ways on the backs of those oppressions, now we have to do something about that. And I, uh, what I'm finding is that once folks kind of write themselves um, from you know the initial kind of reel of sort of uh, recognizing that that's been at play, they then sort of arm themselves to disrupt things because um, they're left with a really uncomfortable kind of cognitive dissonance that they're, they wanna resolve. And so as painful as it is, I'm also finding my colleagues uh, across the country now as I engage in these conversations to be really receptive um, to the conversation, which is fantastic to see. That's, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that, that's great that, that the conversations are starting and that there is a receptiveness to that. So um, maybe, I mean, you, you've talked about sort of there's a, a little bit of a history in terms of that um, oppression and inequity sort of built within medicine and healthcare itself. I mean, can you point to a couple of examples that sort of would help us to sort of see what that might look like? Um, and maybe as a follow-up question, just, um, you know, because you use the word oppression and I suspect that contained within that is the concepts of power. So where does that get connected to medicine and, and how does that play out in this? So I might start with your second question first around, you know, kind of what is that intersection between oppression and power? Because it's an excellent uh, question and gets at the heart of why at Dalhousie University, we are taking an approach around anti-oppression. And we, when we first started doing this work intensively in 2020, like so many other organizations did in the advent of, you know, sort of Black and Indigenous Lives Matter, we recognized that we wanted to tackle racism, but we also wanted to tackle other forms of discrimination. And certainly when we looked for language that described that intention, we went to the language of anti-discrimination initially, but recognized that um, it felt limited to us because a lot of what we found was in the, the uh, literature from the profession of law, which speaks to you know, the need to make sure that you're not violating human rights. And that felt a little bit like a low bar to us, mm -hmm. honestly. And so when we went looking further, we were reminded of the language of anti-oppression, which is language that is used in the practice of our colleagues in nursing and in social work, and has long been a tenet of um, you know, those, uh, those, those practices and, and those professions. And what I love about the framing around Orient, uh, the orientation around uh, anti-oppression is that um, it points to two things. One is it points to the reality that all of us live with multiple identities. Mm -hmm. 
And those identities confer, uh, in some cases, power and privilege, and in other cases, they confer disadvantage. And it is the combination of those identities that ultimately determines where somebody might experience either of those things, privilege or disadvantage. And so, you know, what I say to folks as an example is I hold at a minimum uh, the identities of uh, woman, Black woman, and physician. And when mm -hmm. I walk into a room, I'm aware that folks may react to me on one, two, or all three of those identities. I can't necessarily disentangle in the moment which of my identities they're reacting to, but I'm aware that whatever comes out of that, the constellation of their reactions will determine the nature of the relationship I'm going to have with them. Mm -hmm. And so within that, there is this notion of power. And so this is the second thing that anti-oppression points to is the idea that as you were dealing with those multiple identities, you need to be aware that they confer power in certain relationships and how that power dynamic plays out and who is left at, at a disadvantage um, because of less power in the relationship is critical to understanding what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so in that respect, uh, anti-oppression really speaks well to, I mean, the name oppression, you know, speaks well to the ways in which power over continues to be the experience of, uh, of, of so many of our populations that others have power over them, right? Uh, and so that's why we've chosen that, that language at, at, Dal at Dalhousie University's Faculty of Medicine. And then, you know, with respect to your question around uh, where medicine has been complicit in upholding uh, oppression, you know, I recently was treated uh, to an introduction to a colleague of mine at University of Kentucky who does this same work that I mm -hmm. do as an associate dean in the Faculty of Medicine there. And I have been, you know, sort of uh, reminding my colleagues that, um, you know, certainly looking at racism as an example, this is a socially constructed idea, which means that it was invented and it was invented for sociopolitical uh, circles. And, I, you know, I am not a critical race theorist or a historian or a sociologist. So much of this I am gleaning from reading in those domains and from working with my colleagues who are experts in those fields and have been saying this for decades and decades. But it was my colleague in Kentucky who pointed out to me that not only is that true, but when the initial socio-political calls went out from world leaders in the 17 and 1800s to help uh, bring forward scientific explanations for why colonialism um, and domination of certain groups should exist, it was physicians that answered that call. Mm -hmm. And when he said it to me, I sort of had a moment of, I'd never heard it framed this was just, you know, probably eight weeks ago. And I thought, I've never heard it framed that way. And then I went looking at the literature again and realized, oh my gosh, he's absolutely right. Physicians were at the forefront of creating that social construct. And so that's, you know, the 17 and 1800s, but even working it forward, I talked to my colleagues, you know, we're all aware of the examples of Tuskegee and uh, Henrietta Lacks and, and those uh, startling examples. And there are so many others. I speak to my colleagues of, the ways in which um, Black anger, and particularly anger from Black men during the civil rights movement in the 1960s, that anger was appropriate, but actually it had a psychiatric diagnosis assigned to it in the 1960s. It was called the protest psychosis. Ouch. <laughs> right? Yeah, as though there is something wrong with that level of anger over uh, the, you know, the extreme violations of human rights that were happening at that time. Um, take it even further forward, um, 
you can look at the calls that we are still hearing from Indigenous women about forced sterilization uh, and the role that the Canadian healthcare system has played in that. Um, I do on occasion refer back to even the master's thesis of our beloved Tommy Douglas in this country. He was a hero of mine growing up in my house, and he mm -hmm. wrote some theses in, in favor of eugenics uh, when he was a master's student. Yeah, he rejected those ideas in the end, absolutely. But all of those components of our, our history are, are, are there. And then you look, you know, even in modern times at the numerous ways in which we hear about overt discrimination against uh, patients, yes, from a variety of backgrounds, um, queer and trans community patients, uh, BIPOC patients, persons with disabilities, the list goes on and on, but also faculty, students, and staff in those environments as well. And so as, in as much as I would like to um, wish that those circumstances didn't exist, I think we have a, a large degree of evidence that points to the ways in which they have persisted in four hundreds of years. Yeah, and I think there's a, like I said, coming back to some of my earlier comments around, there's an aspect of truth and reconciliation in that, in terms of just acknowledging that these things have happened. Absolutely. That, that health professionals and, and doctors in particular carry a certain amount of power, you know, they're scientists, um, right? And we as making decisions in our society uh, are seeking facts and evidence to support our decisions, whether, the, you know, whatever those policies might be. Um, um, and, and so, yeah, there's, there's lots of examples. Um, I think if we think, you know, carefully, I mean, even in the context of COVID, right, where it, it only takes the voice of one physician who said that, um, that vaccinations are unproven and, and don't produce the right results, right, to be, you know, amplified and spread miraculously around the world which he doesn't speak for everybody but that but somebody's going to say but the doctor said right right um, yeah and so <clears throat> it speaks really to the power that we have as professionals and have held over other populations often you know i'm going to let my colleagues off the hook and say today's generations of physicians may not do that with intent but I think the call now is that they have to do it with awareness. They have to be aware of the impact yeah. that they have and the, and the impact of the power that they hold as professionals and communities, because as you say, it can be so dam damaging and, and devastating. Yeah. And I think it's, it's that awareness that I think, I think you've painted a, a wonderful picture of that, um, that in walking into that room, right, you carry with you that privilege or disadvantage um, knowingly or unknowingly. Um, and that, that, you know, creates um, a, can create a power differential, I guess, in that conversation before it even starts. That's right. So my next question builds on a quote that I received in my own LinkedIn feed here this week um, that was quoting Dr. Notisha Masakwai. I, I hope I pronounced her name right. Um, it reads, when we're talking about health equity and the need for health equity, we're talking about the survival of Black people. It's not as simple as everybody receiving the same care, regardless of race. And when I'm talking about health equity, I'm talking about a system that responds and wants Black people and Black communities to survive. So, I mean, there's a lot packed into that, those couple of sentences, I think. Um, but the thing that I guess that really struck me in, in, in reading that is that it's not as simple as everybody receiving the same care, regardless of race, um, which 
seems in some ways provocative, but I think also very insightful. But I guess I wanted to get your perspective on that. And maybe you could help unpack that and, and add your own perspective on that. Yeah, gosh, there is a lot there. And I, and I love the quote. Thank you for, for sharing it. I think it's absolutely um, uh, accurate. And so I, I would say a few things, you know, I, I guess I would say everybody receiving the same care suggests that everybody is already equally receiving some baseline level. And so everybody will kind of, if increases are made to that baseline, that everybody will continue to sort of have equal outcomes as a result. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that many of our patients are disadvantaged long before they set foot into our healthcare system. And so if we're going to create a disadvantage, you know, from the purposes of, for the purposes of uh, their health outcomes, and we have all kinds of statistics that point to that, our chronic disease statistics, our premature death rate uh, statistics, let alone our social determinants statistics around education levels and poverty levels and employment levels, the list goes on and on. So we have whole populations of people, including black populations, um, at, you know, as the, the author of this quote is pointing out, that, um, are living with that level of disadvantage day after day after day. And so if we expect that by providing them with equal care to everybody else, they are going to reach an equal outcome to everybody else, we are mistaken because they are, what I describe is they are already starting with anchors on their feet. Mm -hmm. And so if the idea is to level up everybody, those populations we need to work with much more intensively uh, in order for them to actually receive those same uh, high-level outcomes that we expect everybody else to receive. And so there's that in, in the quote. I see that. I also see in the quote a real sort of uh, call to inclusion. And I think, you know, the notion of inclusivity is one that is a little bit more difficult for us to wrap our minds around. And I suspect that that's why the author is, is pointing to that specifically. Um, you know, this idea that uh, we need a system that responds and wants Black people and Black communities to survive. And I would say other communities that are underrepresented as well, or equity deserving as well. And so that, that it speaks to a number of things about, well, so, you know, so how are those communities actually included in the healthcare system now? Who are the decision makers in the healthcare system? And are those decision makers representative of those communities and their ideas and needs? Who gets to decide for me is always, I'm a public health physician. So for me, it's always a public health question, but I would also mm -hmm. say it's a health systems question. It's a medical education question that helps us uncover where our bias is hiding in our uh, decision-making that might continue to exclude certain groups, again, from those outcomes that we, we um, espouse uh, wanting them to have. And so it's a question of... Um, whether or not um, the decision makers at play truly represent the universal experience or truly understand a, universe, a universal experience or is the experience that they are expecting to interact with based on some normative you know, sort of set of conditions that those decision makers have not questioned or interrogated before now. Um, you know, one of the, the ways I put this, I've recently had a conversation um, with a colleague of mine here at Dalhousie University, and I tell this story quite frequently. Dr. Eli Manning is our visiting scholar in equity, diversity, and inclusion mm -hmm. and accessibility here at the Faculty of Medicine. And that is a program that we deliberately set up to invite scholars from those other disciplines who know way more about uh, the challenges of inequities than we do in medicine uh, to spend a year with us 
helping our faculty sort of move these conversations along. And so when Dr. Manning first uh, started, she and I had this fantastic conversation where she said to me, wow, you guys in medicine, you have this really interesting conceptualization of the model patient. And I knew it was going to be good. So I said, do tell me. And what she said was, well, in social work, which is her home faculty, when we talk about the model patient, we talk about the patient that we have to model our services after. Mm -hmm. And then she said, you know, we know in social work that our patients are going to be from newcomer communities. They're going to be single moms. They're going to be from indigenous communities. And so we model our services to make sure we're supporting that. And I started laughing. I said, oh, that is not our definition of the model patient in medicine. I said, we literally have a model patient that we use for teaching called the 70 kilogram man. And if you ask, certainly faculty members of my generation, and I would suggest we are probably still teaching this to students, they will all recognize the 70 kilogram man. And so the mantra is, if you can understand physiology in a 70 kilogram man, you can understand it in anybody. Ouch. And then she started <laughs> laughing because we both realized that in that conversation, we have not said 70 kilogram white man, but that's assumed. Mm -hmm. We have not said 70 kilogram white able-bodied man, but that's assumed. We have not said 70 kilogram white able-bodied cisgendered heterosexual man, but that's assumed. And then we were both in stitches because, you know, I had this realization. What I said to her was, Eli, there's not one of us in our clinical practices that only has 70 kilogram white able-bodied cisgendered heterosexual men, <laughs> right? So how is it that our systems are actually being designed for the people that really see them, that really need them? I think that's what your, your quote is calling to, Dale, you know, around this question of, do we have a system that actually wants uh, equity-deserving groups to thrive? And if that's, if that, the answer to that is yes, then we would actually have to acknowledge the ways in which we may have designed systems that uh, systematically exclude those groups because they're just not part of the frame of thinking, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you, I mean, you, you've come say, right into the next question I sort of wanted to come to you with as well, um, but I'm still sort of processing uh, the, the brilliance of what you've shared. So, but so yeah, one of the things that I'm really hoping to get through with the whole series that we're doing on on EDI, but on in particular in our conversation here today with you, is trying to understand the issues about institutional or structural racism. So I think it's some of those systems that you've just described in your your final comments there. Um, you know, I, it, it's certainly well quoted and it continues to be quoted. I just heard it a few weeks ago, again, from some of our, you know, highly esteemed politicians or, or right, that, you know, again, their words may not have been intended as such, but those sound bites persist, um, where they simply say there is not structural or institutional racism in our province <laughs> or in our organization, um, right? right? And, and I know when I'm saying this, I'm not asking you to agree or disagree with that. I think it's highly rhetorical, but, but I think the, really it is. So how do you answer that question or that, that, that answer that, that he made? Um, um, you know, what is your perspective on structural racism, um, oppression, I think, as you would describe it even more broadly? Um, how does it continue to persist in healthcare more specifically? I think you've alluded to a little bit of that in terms of uh, medicine in particular. And then, 
you know, I, and I know this, you know, in 10 words or less, how do we dismantle it? <laughs> <laughs> well, if I could do that in 10 words or less, I'd probably have a different job. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really, it's a good question. And although we're, we're chuckling, you know, I am aware that we both, you know, kind of understand the ridiculousness of the statement. And, and so I would, I would go in a few different directions, maybe um, with a, with that idea. I mean, you know, the, the description I've just given you of how the healthcare system has been created and with who in mind, I think is a really important one. And I don't think, in fact, I think there is ample evidence in the social science literature, as well as now increasingly in the medical education literature, uh, and in the health outcomes literature to point to the ways in which absolutely in healthcare we have structural and, and uh, systemic racism. And why wouldn't we is the thing. So when I look as a public health physician into the determinants of health, which I describe as the large societal systems of influence that shape our everyday lives outside of the healthcare system, our systems of justice, education, uh, social services, transportation, you know, those, those types of systems. I'm aware that just like the healthcare system, those systems have been brought up under 400 years of false ideas around race. They were constructed from those same false beliefs around biological differences between people of different skin color that we now know not to be true. So I'm speaking specifically about racism, mm -hmm. but I think similarly, um, uh, you know, my, my, Colleagues who come at it from a feminist theory perspective would say similarly uh, that has happened um, for the construction of women uh, and their roles in many of these institutions as well. And so, um, for you know, over 400 years, we have taken this false construct and we have continued to build, 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 build on it into every single institution that has come since. And so, and without, I don't think being. Uh, necessarily always conscious of how we were laboring on to those false ideas. And so we now have these deeply embedded to the point where they are hidden from us. They are like the air that we breathe. They're mm -hmm. just there. Ideas about who the systems are there to serve, who are the, uh, I'm, and I am saying who are the problems that the system needs to solve. So positioning certain populations as problems to be solved, to be dealt with, not as having inherent and intrinsic value to add to the system. That has been a construct over 400 years. And so you, you don't have to dig very far and you don't have to have a history <laughs> degree, yeah. um, you know, in order to realize, holy cow, if that's been the construction of it, then how could we not have systemic uh, oppression occurring in our institutions, right? So it's a little, um, I don't know, I, you, you use the term, I think, disingenuous, but I, I think it's a little naive. Uh, you know, to insist that this doesn't exist when the entire world was constructed around these false ideas, right? And we are still living with those institutions today. And I recently, um, or about a year ago, actually reached out to the authors of the Implicit uh, Bias book. Many of your listeners will be familiar with the Implicit Association Test. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, like many who do this work, I... I um, I'm familiar with that with that work, and you know one of the legacies I think of that 400 years of construction um, around this this issue of race and and the racism that we've been left with, is that it now is embedded in our brains, right? So 
we have these beliefs in a place that we can't see. The whole point of an implicit bias is that it lives in the unconscious, which means that it's in a place in the brain where you can't access it and you can't alter it, which drives us crazy, right? Because we all wish we could just flip a switch and our brains wouldn't do that anymore. And then we could, you know, sort of cleanly declare ourselves to be not racist. And the challenge is that none of us can make that declaration because we've all been brought up in this 400 year kind of fog. And so I wrote to the uh, one of the authors of that of that test and, and one of the scholars in that area of work and, and said to him, so uh, what do we do? He's a psychologist. I said, so how do we undo our brains from this place? And his answer was, you can't. Mm-hmm. You know, what he said was, short of another three or 400 year social experiment where we deliberately, you know, sort of flip the paradigms that have been created by where we've gone, we will not be able to undo the wiring in our brains, right? So again, I go, when that's at play, it's naive to think that it does not also play out in our institutions. And then when you look again at the social determinants of health and the health outcomes and social outcomes that we see as a result of that, you see that it is definitely playing out in our institutions. Statistically alone, we have the evidence of that in those outcomes around um, grade 12 graduation, incarceration rates, children in custody of the state, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess as you're describing the, the, the challenge of sort of changing that, um, I guess the one thing that I was also thinking, like you can't, I think it's a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Gigi Osler as well, right? I mean, you, you can't leave your your subjectivity behind i mean because you're you it's part of who you are right so you cannot become overtly objective or neutral in some of these things because there's all this stuff as you i think as you you know well pointed out right that's wired into who we are so i'm wondering about the connection between that then and empathy um or some other construct that we might use to somehow not rewire that but somehow to still find ourselves in a in a space where we can still see others um see their see i think as you've described at the beginning as well the unfairness or the inequities that that are coming with people um into their interactions with us and um meet and and going back to your the social work sort of paradigms meeting them where they are as opposed to where we are so as does it does that resonate or is there something else that you might add to that you know it it really does and and i might add something else to it i think it's empathy but i think it's also something like critical Mm self-awareness um so you know i think the empathy is an important piece and i'm aware that often when folks try and engage with empathy they see it as something that i do for another Mm -hmm. and while i think that's that's helpful i think there's a there's another layer to it which is something that I recognize in and of myself that requires me to respond to another in a certain way. That's a little bit different framing. And so that's where I think the critical self-reflection comes in. So in order for us to extend that empathy, I think we have to uh, really challenge ourselves to see how any of us might be upholding oppression in any given moment, including by the ways of the identities and therefore powers that we hold in any given moment, and then extend that empathy on the basis of that understanding. And I think that's true at an individual level, but I think it's also true at a systemic level. So 
I, you know, I'm aware too. Um, and you know, the longer I, I sort of stay in my career as a physician, maybe the more critical I get of the system because I'm aware that even in our best attempts at being patient-centered and empathetic and responsive, there is something about how we have oriented towards patient care that is suggestive, again, that the patients are a problem to be solved or a problem to be managed rather than having intrinsic value to the system. Mm-hmm. And that manifests in the ways that we um, have signs of welcome or don't in our facilities, for example, or the ways that we have rules and requirements and uh, expectations in our facilities, but don't ask what might be expected of us in return, right? Um, It it can very quickly become a one-sided conversation with the healthcare system when a patient engages with the big amorphous 50% of provincial budgets or approaching 50% of provincial budgets healthcare system. And so I don't know how we reorient that, but as we reorient the self around empathy and critical self-reflection, I would wonder if we don't also pay attention to how the system then starts to uh, portray something that we actually want to see, right? You know, I, I um, every time I go into a, an acute care facility and I look around at the signage and the walls, uh, which I think is a really good way of um, understanding the institutional or- orientation, I am struck by how directive and unfriendly a lot of that signage can be. Mm-hmm. Literally down to the point of do this, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that, or we won't provide care. And while I can appreciate that some of those messages, particularly around respectful behavior, need to be there, what I don't see is the promise that we're extending as well uh, as healthcare systems. Um, you know, if if our condition is met. And I think being able to extend that promise is really important. I speak to it frequently. And in the one Nova Scotia work that you referenced in my bio, I spoke to it around the concept of welcome, which is not a well-studied, academically well-studied construct. There are a few academics around the world who have looked at the the idea of welcome and what is intrinsic in a good welcome. Um, But what they point to is when you get the welcome right, a whole bunch of other outcomes start to emerge. And in broadly speaking in community, some of those um, outcomes, so the literature that looks at welcome, for example, for immigrant populations into new communities points to that welcome leading to all kinds of outcomes, educational attainment, for example, civic engagement uh, down the road, all those types of things. And so it makes me wonder in our tiny little corner of the world in the healthcare system, what would extending a meaningful welcome unlock in terms of patient outcomes, staff satisfaction, lowering of burnout rates. You know, I think there's something more that we could be looking at there that allows us to be in more of a direct relationship with the uh, the communities that we're interested in than maybe we think we are right now. Yeah, I and I'm sure that, they, and I think it's a, another great um, place for us to look and, and examine, right? Because it, it goes unseen in many respects. It's just assumed. And, and you know, I, I certainly reflect like it's just in terms of our, the interpersonal welcomes about how we present a hand or, right, the, the, those things, right? And they mean so much, but in an organization perspective, it, there's so many other um, 
symbols and signs, I guess, that, that sort of get communicated as part of that, That's which right. we never really examine. And I would reflect on even my interactions with my own local hospital of, you know, going to an ER, right, to get service. And, and there's that line on that floor. And it's the, and I think exactly you said, don't cross this line. Um, and that's, there's a, there's so many things that get caught up in that, but you're already in a place of being told, you know, of distrust, of being, um, creating power, right, uh, threatened, yeah. right. And, and I'm a, I'm an able-bodied white man who's 70 kilograms, right. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> right. right and I feel uncomfortable there so I can imagine right for many others right where those lines have had other symbolic meanings in their other places in this in their worlds in their lives right that that it just sets things up from on the wrong foot literally that's exactly it that's exactly it and all of a sudden we're not in a collaborative relationship we are in somewhat of an antagonistic one whether or not we ever intended to go there right mm -hmm. so they're 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 subtle structures but they i think they have more importance than we than we pay attention to you know the one that i often use when i'm lecturing on this topic is uh the pride flag mm -hmm. and and what i remind folks of is that you can walk down certainly here in, in the city of halifax you can walk down any sort of street in the downtown core and you will see many pride flags proudly displayed in shop windows and every single person who walks by that flag knows what it means Mm -hmm. They know that it means that if you come in here and you identify as part of the LGBTQ2SIA community, you will be welcome here and you will be protected. Mm -hmm. And I am willing to bet that not any of those shop owners went to a one day or two day or two week seminar on how to provide a welcome and safe environment mm -hmm. before they put that flag up, right? Yeah. So there is something intrinsic about our knowledge of how to provide a welcome that doesn't require any training. It just requires a little bit of thought. I'm from the Maritimes. We all know how to provide a good welcome. We pride ourselves on it in the Maritimes. You know, there's yeah. going to be lobster. There's probably going to be fiddle music somewhere. I mean, we just go there. Um, and so, I, you know, I start to think about if we could extend those types of promises, even subtly, by the use of symbols like that, what would it mean to those communities that we're trying to serve? The catch is, it is a promise. So if we just blindly kind of put up the symbol and then walk away from the obligations that it actually represents, the community will spot that in a heartbeat and they will call us out on it. Yeah. But I start to wonder, what are the ways that we could extend that welcome, right? Um, and exactly as you said, which is a little, you know, counter, counter to the current messages <laughs> that we are giving explicitly or, or subtly in our institutions. So you've, you've talked about sort of the, the need for critical self-reflection in this. So um, to go, and I think perhaps weaving that back into the, the discussion previously around the structural um, and institutional side of things. So how do we gain that organizational self-reflection and maybe, and just sort of leading you a little bit, you know, the role of data in that. Yeah, well, I think data certainly plays a big, uh, big role. And, you know, as a public health physician, I'm, I'm always going to go there. And one of the challenges in, in the Canadian healthcare system continues to be that we are not collecting differential data on outcomes for our Canadian healthcare system. Broadly speaking, it's happening in pockets. The government of Nova Scotia has committed to making a race or ethnic identifier available at the time that somebody is issued a, a medical insurance card here. Um, 
which will be helpful so that now there will be sort of that data point that the health system can, can enter into. And maybe then we can start tracking these outcomes because the challenge is if we're not collecting the data, then we get to do two things. One is um, we get to, so we can't see the, the problems that are occurring. We can't see the differentials and outcomes that are likely occurring. And so that means that we get to deny that there is a problem. And I recently uh, gave some uh, remarks in this area at University of Western Ontario. And, and one of the attendees pointed out that not only do we get to deny that there is a problem um, around our approaches to equity, but we also then get to make the claim that we're not like the United States, we don't have the problems that they have. So the United States, by, by contrast, does collect this data. Mm -hmm. The data does point in real time to strong evidence of differential outcomes for underrepresented uh, and equity deserving groups. But because we're not collecting the data in Canada, you know, what this participant was pointing out is that um, we've been standing in this place of we don't have those problems <laughs> Here, uh -huh. which feels a little bit like willful ignorance, right? It's easy for us to say we don't have the problems because we're not collecting the data. And so from my perspective, I think that that's actually critical. I was part of some of the conversations here in Nova Scotia and nationally about how we create data collection tools for COVID um, to kickstart that conversation in Canada. My hope is I'm no longer in the public health system, but my hope is that that work continues and extends out to other health outcomes beyond COVID because we have to start looking at this. So I think that's, that's a big one for, uh, for sort of healthcare system leaders and healthcare institutions. And I would regularly get asked by my colleagues who are not in public health, but other, um, other parts of the healthcare system, you know, what's the population health approach to um, successfully running a healthcare system? And what I would say is create the data. Who is coming in the doors of your institution? Who is not coming in the doors of your institution? And for those who are not, why not? And some of the answer might be, they actually don't need the institutions because many of our citizens we forget are hale and healthy and living their lives out there and they don't need to come in the doors. But also be prepared for the ones who are not coming in because they do actually have a need, but they don't feel the health system is, can meet it or there may be other reasons you have to collect that data to understand the reasons before you can create a response to it. And in the absence of collecting that data, what we do is we create the response. People aren't coming in the door, so we need to do something. Let's go to that community and let's offer them a, a clinic. And I've literally been in communities where that has been done. And then nobody from the community came to the clinic. Mm -hmm. And the healthcare system said, where is everybody? Why, why haven't they shown up? And the community said, well, you're a healthcare system. You asked what you could do for us. We know you do clinics. So we said yes to that. But actually what we need is education, jobs, you know, access to clean water, those basic necessities, housing. And that's not something the healthcare system provides. Um, but in the absence of data pointing to what are the actual issues in these communities, the healthcare system just went ahead and built a clinic, right? And so having that data is helpful for communities, but it's also helpful for the system to make sure that we're actually making the right diagnosis before we launch an intervention. That's, that's uh, really critical. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Certainly, you know, if you're, you, I think we used to, if you're a hammer, right, you see everything as a nail. So if our system, you know, sees itself as being a provision of health services, then that assumes that that's what it should be doing um, for all its communities. But right. um, so I'd, I'd love to get your perspective 
and, and maybe data is connected to this as well, to be fair. So I'd love to get your perspective on the relationship between racial, ethnic, cultural discrimination, oppression, bias, um, and other kinds of mistreatment in the health system, and the relationship between that and harm. Um, and especially as it relates to how that might be interpreted or labeled, you know, in, in the context of patient safety. Um, and maybe just to give a bit further context on that, I mean, do you think that this type of incident or situation should be treated as a formal patient safety incident, um, uh, assuming that harm has occurred when someone experiences these kinds of situations? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, it, not surprisingly, my, my bias would be toward I think it should be reported because those systems exist as system learning opportunities. I say that knowing that one of the challenges is still in the realm of patient safety. I think we have many providers who don't see those systems as system learning opportunities. They see them as something else, something a little bit more punitive for the provider. And so there is hesitancy in engaging with those uh, reporting systems from a provider perspective. There will also be hesitancy in engaging from the patient perspective. So we've spoken about the power dynamics that are at play when uh, somebody from an equity deserving group engages with the healthcare system. And so the distrust of the system may be high such that um, even getting the sort of uh, report from a patient, even with the support of a healthcare provider, may be difficult to do. The patient may just want to walk away from it because they'll worry that by reporting it, it impacts their future care. I still think it's a worthy pursuit because if we could generate those reports, then we're doing two things. One is we are providing those systems learning opportunities so uh, institutions can do better. And the second is that if we are successfully generating those reports, then it probably means that somehow we have created that culture of welcome and safety in the institution so that patients now feel supported to report and are not afraid to do it. And that means we're doing something right. So whenever these types of questions come up, as they have even in our faculty of medicine here at Dalhousie, you know, I'm always quick to point out to people that an increase in reporting does not necessarily mean the sky is falling. An yes. increase in reporting might actually be uh, you know, might actually mean that the folks who are reporting trust us with the information. They trust us to see it and honor it, and they trust us to do something uh, productive with it. And so if trust is going up and reporting is increasing, at least at the beginning of a reporting, uh, you know, sort of system, the, the early days of it, uh, I think that's actually a, a really important marker. So I think there are a number of ways in which uh, reporting mistreatment is, is really uh, instructive. And yet, you know, I have been in the rooms where not just providers, but, you know, also health system administrators are uh, wary of that type of system, because what if this gets out in the public? How do we tell the story? How do we make it seem like we're not a racist institution? And, I, you know, I think for those administrators, um, the dialogue probably needs to be something different. It's not about denying that you are racist, because as I think I've, I've discussed already, how could any of us not be racist given the 400 year fog we've been living in? And so the question becomes, how does a system with integrity actually point to, yes, we see this data. Yes, we believe in this data. Yes, we know how we have work to do. And here's the work that we're doing and we'll keep doing it until we get it right. And we welcome more feedback. That's a different response. And I think one that would actually be met favorably by the, by the media as well as by uh, the public at large. So. 
uh, that would be the example I think that I would encourage uh, system administrators to set with that with that type of reporting. Yeah. So in it maybe bring this full circle again it, it comes back to sort of acknowledging this is how we are but we aspire to be different right um to a different exactly. world so um, exactly. but you still have to acknowledge the harms and and right and and that can be painful i i, I can well assume right none of us go and well very few of us go into this world intending to hurt others, right? That doesn't mean that we don't, um, right? So, um, and in in healthcare, I think it certainly happens for sure. I mean, you you've heard examples, I've heard examples, we've ex we've seen them, right? Of people who've um, been treated inappropriately because of their race um, or gender, um, and and that has left you know. Uh, a scar right had nothing to do with the real reason that they presented themselves um and and how does one deal with that so yeah it's a, it's exactly that and it comes back you know i think to your question of these are the ways in which we start to understand it's not as simple as everybody receiving the same care regardless of race for example or regardless of gender or regardless of ability it speaks to some much deeper soul searching that we need to do in our healthcare systems if we're truly going to provide the equitable care that we say we're interested in. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I I know I, um, for me, you know, conversations like this with yourself are very um, very enlightening and very empowering. Quite frankly, um, in in and I don't think of myself as as a racist person or part of the problem. But that doesn't change the fact that I still feel like I'm learning in my own way um, through this. And um, so I, I can't thank you enough for for sharing in this um, and helping me to better understand my own role in this and how um, myself and my colleagues and, and others across the country can can be difference makers and in, in, in aspiring to something better. It's a pleasure. Always happy to have the conversation and really glad for your interest in this question. Great. Uh, thank you, Gaynor. Um, I wish you well. Um, and yes, I, I do hope that we can have further conversations on this. I know you have many other insights to share as well. So thank you again. My pleasure. You've been listening to The HQ and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.